0: Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with nightmares on wax. Inspired by the sound system culture of his native Leeds, George Evelyn started out building makeshift speakers out of spare TV parts and discarded shoeboxes. With Kevin Harper, he went on to form Nightmares on Wax, a DJ duo that evolved into the production team known for eternal war pits like Aftermath, I'm For Real, and Dexterous. They eventually went their separate ways, but Evelyn went on to develop the soulful stoner electronica sound most people associate with Nightmares on Wax today. More than 20 years and 5 albums later, it's a sound he continues to pursue working from his home studio in Ibiza, where he's lived since 2007. On a recent trip to London, Evelyn sat down with Carlos Hawthorne to try and make sense of his long and winding career. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net, and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Nightmares on Wax is up next.
1: george so thanks for agreeing to do this again uh listeners might like to know that we've already had a run through a
2: practice yeah, of this I think,
1: interview in ibiza i think um, you,
2: you know your questions now right? yeah. i think I, I might know my answers now
1: yeah the recording got messed up but um so yeah here we are take two
2: what brings you to london man uh i'm here playing at, uh xoyo tonight yeah it's been some tunes a little hook up with the label and stuff um, and then I'm heading to Oslo tomorrow. So it's my first DJ shows of 2017.
1: How's the year been so far?
2: These, these last few weeks It's been amazing because I've been on holiday. Um, but I've been actually, I've just been finalising the album, doing the final little tweaks on the album, so, which I'm looking to deliver in the next couple of weeks. So, yeah, starting fruitful already. You've not been paying attention to the news much? Uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm not really into mainstream media, so I like to do my own research as it were, because there's a lot of noise out there. I mean,
1: thinking about times like these, I know you're a very positive person, but kind of, you know, these are difficult times and sad times depending on how you look at it. I mean, does that kind of thing inspire you to make music?
2: Yeah, but also I think that it's a a good time to recognize the human spirit. Uh, I've had this conversation with a few people over the last couple of weeks who disagree with me. They don't believe in the human spirit, but I'm like, how can you not believe in the human spirit? Whatever's represented on the news doesn't represent the globe. People need to wake up to that, I think. And also, I think the media plays a lot in hijacking people's emotions, as it were. Obviously, there's 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 a lot of shit being said, and a lot of uh, you know, a lot of people are being singled out for, for ridiculous things. So uh, there's a response to that. But I, the way I, I find uh, positivity is that people are actually standing up and saying something now. Uh, when other administrations or other powers that will be in charge, I think we're all all victims of being lazy because we think somebody's a nice guy when atrocities have been going on all along. So I think that a wild card, which I'm gonna call him that, comes into our reality to wake us up a little bit, You know, whether the policies are a whack or not. I just think that um, it's important for us to all stand up and all to be together. And it takes shit to hit the fan to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've read a lot about, you know, people say this is an important time to be creating art and that's one way to kind of combat all this stuff. You kind of go along with that.
2: Yeah, I've, I've, I have I've think I've said many times before that you can map music with social issues and social times, you know, and and, some of the greatest music ever made was when some of the greatest social pressures were going down. Do you know what I mean? Which is why people talk a lot about the '60s and stuff like that, and the amazing music that came out then. Is that the I could say the human spirit responds to that because that's 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 where you tap into the truth, and your truth is always, is generally comes from your feelings. Do you know what I mean? So when we're all cozy, and we're all sat back, and everything's hunky dory. It's it's you can create, but. It, I don't think it resonates so much. Do you know what I mean?
1: These days you live in Ibiza. I mean, do you find the island an inspiring place to make
2: music? I do. I do find Ibiza inspiring to make a place, but I also have recognised the need to travel to the city. It's just a different energy. And, and you know, I can make music at home and it's wonderful. Uh but then when I come back to the city, whether it's in London or in Leeds, or any city for that matter of fact, and I listen to what I've been working on, I can hear exactly what it needs. Do you know what I mean? And th- there's definitely an element of being too blissed out when you, when you are in a, a paradise like a beefer. But, you know, it's a great, it's an amazing hub to be creative and connect and, and do things with people or on your own. But I, f- I think that, the urban element of life is so important. Do you know what I mean? Because I could be shouting from the rooftops or the mountains of a beaver of what I'm expressing, but it might not connect in the city. They could be like, well, what's <laughs> what's he on? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I think the balance of both is really important.
1: Do you have a kind of a group of musicians and Ibiza that you bounce ideas off and show your stuff to?
2: Let me think. There's there's a couple of guys. Paul Powell, uh, a guy who used to be Misha Paris's bass player. He's a guy I've had play with me. And my neighbor, this 18 year old kid called Marlon Lopez, who went to the same school as my daughter. He came and t- did some shows with us last year. I've 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 got him into recording the album. I think it's important to have young blood and uh, that next generation of people around you. Do you know what I mean? So. But then I've also like I still connect with 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 some of the foundations. What I would say, are people I've worked with over the years, uh, a guy called Chris Dawkins, amazing guitarist from Leeds, uh, LSK from Leeds. Do you know what I mean? I just think that these people are kind of they just we just all hold hold something very similar. Let's just call us novices. Let's put it that way.
1: <laughs> Your relationship with Ibiza stretches all the way back to late eighties. It's a long time you have had a kind of. Yeah, close relationship and love for the island. I mean, why did you first go there?
2: Uh, it was on a total whim of a friend uh, recommending me and Boy Wonder, who started nightmares, out, who I started out nightmares and wax with at the time in in '88. We had a bit of cash and we were like, we want to go on holiday. So it was like first time getting a passport, first time getting on a plane, and this friend of ours said, you should, you guys should go to Ibiza. You'd really love it. So we booked a flight. We, I think we had like seventy pounds each and we ran out of money after three days. But eighty eight, it was the summer of eighty eight and that was our first experience in a you know, no money, lots of parties, lots of San Miguel, <laughs> dehydrated in the sun, walking back from amnesia, you know. <laughs> nice. Um
1: and you'd visit regularly through the nineties and the
2: And then sporadically through the nineties I got a couple of short did a couple of gigs there, uh, and then visited there obviously the holidays and stuff like that. And then this this, this relationship started with the island and it wasn't until like I would say 98, I think, when I could actually afford to hire a car and uh, travelled around the island. And I, I, I'd, I'd just been two years previous to my father's homeland, which was a place called St. Kitts, a really small island in the Caribbean, which I'd really loved. And I, when I saw Ibiza, it reminded me of it. And I was just like, wow, do you know what? This place is amazing. I was just like... And that really, I thought I'd been to a Ibiza, you know what I mean? And I, I hadn't, Do you know, and then... I just fell in love with it, or should I say we did. me and my wife fell in love with it from like, pfft, do you know what I mean? And um, it was kind of like, even I look back at some of the videos from back then, there's even little hints and suggestions about living there. We had no clue about living there, but just some of the vocabulary that's in some of these videos, it's just like really bizarre. And then like literally in 2005, came back from Thailand, thought I was living in a dream home in Leeds. which was amazing, had a studio there and everything. And then we were like, well, what we're we doing here, man? This is just bricks and mortar. This is not, you know what I mean? It's like, that's not you really, it's just things. So, and obviously the weather in England, I had a four year old daughter at the time. It was just like, do we really want to bring our kid up in England? No. Do we want to stay in England? No. Where do we love? A first. Should we move there? Yeah. And then 18 months later we were gone, we'd moved. And it really was that easy. And even though it's like the biggest move of, of my life, It was easy, I felt like I've... And I still feel like I went home. I don't feel like I left home. I feel like I went home.
1: You said recently there was the attitude in Britain that you didn't like, you didn't want to bring up your daughter and kind of...
2: Yeah, I just felt like when you've got a four-year-old kid, right, and you want to go out for something to eat and the choices are Wacky Warehouse, uh, McDonald's and all these other places that sell dodgy food. I'm like, this is not about family. This is not about... Like, at the time... It might have changed in England. I don't know. I don't really care. <laughs> at the time, there was nowhere to take your kid for something to eat. There was nothing that was family orientated. I felt the the community spirit was diminishing a little bit as well. At that time, it was all about Bosnians and this and that. There was always got to be somebody, aren't there, to blame? It was all that. That was all the rhetoric rhetoric at the time. And it was just like, you know what? Maybe there's something else. I spent thirty six years of my urban life living in this in, in this country. Maybe there's something else. And if a beefer doesn't work. Then we'll go somewhere else. It'll be a stepping stone out of here. But I also think in life, you've got to reinvent yourself. Just in life, it's good to challenge yourself. And, you know, we, we didn't fly. We drove. We left. You know what I mean? And we were like, it was so important to drive and leave. And that was like, it's emotional, but it was a wonderful thing to do because we did it as a unit. That family that left, I don't know what happened to that family because it's not the family that exists today.
1: Yeah, you've said that. You've said like, you know, the George that left Leeds is not the same George now. What are the, what are the key changes?
2: Probably not being so aloof. Probably not having, um, I believe, such a massive ego. I think all the things that probably carry, yourself, carry through with yourself from being a teenager that you think and uh, are not. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But if anything, um, just just stripping yourself of everything that you've kind of thought you knew. And rebuilding it again. I'm not saying it was easy, do you know what I mean? But the Abitha winters teach you that because um, you can't get away from yourself. Do you know? And, and uh, you know, I hear stories about people not being able to handle the winter because it's too quiet. But I just, you know, I love it. It's like the best kept secret for me. And it's given me a lot of healing, given me a lot of growth. I'm still growing, still learning. And, you know, and, and it's allowed me to be able to tap into the joy of living. You know, and, and appreciate and have, have, have a lot more gratitude in my life.
1: And it was important for you to still be very close to, you know, what is obviously a very thriving music scene.
2: Yeah. I mean, but that's, people laughing we when I say that. That's just a coincidence. <laughs> I didn't move there for that, honestly. Do you know what so I, mean? Why, I mean? So, why not somewhere
1: <laughs> but, else in the Mediterranean or Portugal? Well, we did. We
2: went to mainland Spain, we went to Andalusia, we went, went and looked at these other places, but they were just, they had culture, but it was a singular culture. Do you know what I mean? And being well-traveled people and, and that, we were looking for multi we were looking for things to inspire and to thrive off and I felt these, that some of these places were a little bit stagnant and they had old traditions, which were nice, but I didn't feel there was a shift and a change in some of them places. They just they just didn't really connect on a soul level. You know, loads of people have said it before that Ibiza is a really special place, do you know what I mean? And it, it's not until you live there you know, it can be special when you go for two weeks or a week and have a life-changing experience. But when you live there and you really connect to the island, there's nowhere like it in the world. Do you know what I mean? And I've traveled all over the world, you know, to beautiful places and there's just something about the energy there, the people that I've met there. You know, I met I met a woman that moved there that had never been there with two toddlers. She'd never even been there, she just went and left. And then she's been there ever since. And I'm like, that's an amazing person, man. I, that's like, that's strength, do you know what I mean? And everybody you meet that lives there has got a story that's like pretty incredible. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, it's just a very, on an energy level and on a people level, it is a very special place. You can be anonymous, you can be popular, you can be whatever, you can disappear. It's just a vortex of everything really.
1: During the summer, how much attention do you pay to the kind of club scene and what's going on in the north, in the in the south, sorry?
2: Uh, yeah, I pay attention to it. Do you know what I mean? But I'm, I'm I've, am i over the years I've changed. Like if I go to a club, I'm going specifically to listen to somebody, you know, like obviously, you know, you go to clubs and you go to clubs and you go there and you talk a lot of nonsense and you didn't really listen to anything. You know what I mean? You're chewing the fat with somebody in a corridor somewhere. Do you know what I mean? You know, but now, you know, because obviously my time is, is pretty precious as well because with a lot of, amount of traveling that I do and the amount of time that I'm in clubs. Do you know what I mean? That, that, if, I don't, if I'm never at all, i am never really living there. So it's nice to know the party's down the road. Do you know what I mean? It's 10 minutes away. And that's the thing about a beefy. You could be in absolute silence or in absolute chaos within 10 minutes. So I do pay attention to it. I do go out. Do you know what I mean? But I, like I say, I'm very, it's very sporadic the way that I do it now. You know?
1: Of course, you're running your own parties there. You have been almost since you've moved there, basically.
2: Well, yes. We'll do the, 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 I'm trying to remember now. I think this year will be our eighth season. And we're at Last Elias. We started in, and we started in a in a restaurant called Aura in San Juan, uh, totally illegal. And we built from there really a free party that's developed into a into a club night. Um, but yeah, I mean, like it's a liberal love. Do you know what I mean? I love doing it. It's 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 something that 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 that's grown with Ibiza. You know, when when we started the parties and stuff. And I say we, I mean Neged, I mean Shovel, Wolfgang Hafner. Do you know what I mean? And then all our guests as well, Daddy G and all these people. When we started, uh, the reason why we started was was in response of the lack of diversity in Abifa. Because uh, when I moved there, even though I'd been going there for years, I couldn't believe what wasn't there. That just baffled me. Do you know what I mean? And um, it's changed a lot now. You know, you can't say, unless you don't go to Abifa and you just – See the main headlines of things in a Bifa, you, you 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 know what I mean. You you will, but you probably wouldn't think it was diverse, but it's the diversity is there. There's so many little hidden gems and so many little things going on, little club things, you know, which is what it was needed. And live music is is obviously more popular than ever there, which wasn't there when I moved there, you know. So we wanted to bring the live element into the club, so that meant DJing with a percussionist, a drummer, an MC and let the crowd become part of the jam which hence the name wax the jam and that's how it started really do you know what i mean and then obviously beef for rocks kicked off and they do amazing live shows as well and then more and more over the island there's more live live music and more interaction with the crowd you know
1: yeah it's definitely totally different to anything you get in the kind of more mainstream side of the island very different crowd, more family vibe. You see kids running around. and
2: Yeah, I mean, I've got people saying to me it's the original B for Spirit because you've got somebody from the age of 16 and somebody from the age of 70 in the crowd, which when I was going to a B for, the clubs were like that. The clubs were like that. You did see, like, if you want to call them freaks, but beautiful freaks that be on the dance floor and all that sort of stuff, women in the 70s. guys, And I must admit, there's not much of that now because I don't know whether the the IP tables have taken up all the dance floor space. (laughs) Little dig there. (laughs)
1: Um, No, I think you've got a point. I mean, what are the, you know, over the years, I've been going to Ibiza, Wax to Jam. Sometimes you run it more regularly. Sometimes you scale back. I mean, this summer, we
2: did three or four, was it? We did four. Um, I mean, that, that was kind of sort of pushed. We were pushed in that direction because of the amount of touring I was doing. And with the, with the celebrating the 25 years of Nightmares and Wax and being out on the road most of the time, it was just impossible to do a weekly. And then that ended up being the best way to do it because now it beco- it's become an event that people look forward to. And it means we can focus more on the night. Like, you know, doing a weekly, like anybody in Club World will tell you is a, is a full-time job. Do you know what I mean? So we're kind of running with that format now um, of doing one a month uh, at Las Dalias. Wax the Beach is a spin-off from that as well, uh, which gives me the opportunity to do one-off at beach parties, whether that's at Camaras or or wherever, wherever else on the island and stuff. Do you know what I mean? So that, gives me, that gives me a bit more of an open opportunity. But I think we Wax the Jam, at least we can let the fan base and people know that they know at least one time in the month there's going to be that event and we're going to bring from something original.
1: Yeah, thinking about Ibiza, the club scene in general. I mean, you mentioned there there are plenty of alternatives. I know Mark Barrett's doing something. You've got Pikes. It's always doing interesting stuff.
2: Pikes is great, man.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I hope that just grows and grows. You know, I mean, that, that, while well, one side of the island goes in a very in its own direction, you know, space is now highly B-size, so owned, it's going to be doing its own thing. It means that you know the rest of the island can maybe push in the other direction and open more things up. And
2: yeah, I mean, I I see it this way. I mean, like people do complain about how the commercial direction that the, the, the clubbing world's going in, but it's the same as music. Yeah, to me, I'm like, well, as long as you've got that happening, let's like let's say there's like the, the whole EDM boom thing and that idea of that that taking over everywhere, which not really, but you've always gonna have an underground and that's what we're about, aren't we, at the end of the day? Do you know what I mean? So as long as that shit's happening, that's all good, I think. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because maybe somebody will go to one of them nights or maybe somebody will listen to that type of music They've never even thought about venturing into the other world. It's a doorway, innit, at the end of the day for the people that are not so, not, no I don't mean it disrespect, disrespectfully, but I'm not so clued up. Do you know what I mean? There's gotta be a doorway somewhere, do you know what I mean? So I'm not against any of that shit. Do you know what I mean? I just think that it's too easy to complain. Do you know what I mean? If you don't like something, do something about it, do you know what I mean? Put your own night on or do something, do you know what I mean? That's how I see it. So or make your own record if you don't like what you're hearing, do you know what I mean? So it's like do something sure. about it, you know? For sure, I guess the problem with Ibiza is things like putting on your own parties, that kind of stuff. It's, it's harder
1: than it is elsewhere, you know? The, there is a monopoly from these clubs. There is behind-the-scenes politics, and
2: there is... And the, and the grand, yeah, and the grand scale of things. But you've, that, to me as well, that just means you've got to be more creative, and you've got to try find them places. It's like, you know, people come to Las Dalias, yeah? And they're like, pretty respected people in the club world, come to Las Dalias, come to our night, and they're like, I've never heard of this place. Yeah. And I'm like, well you just think you're in the oldest nightclub in a This is the first ever nightclub that was built in a And you've you've come been coming and playing here or you've been coming to be for how long and you have never heard of it? That's great. At least you can open people's eyes to this is the foundation to the actual club world that exists at Abifer today. This is where it started. Do you know what I mean? So and we love the fact that we're there because this it, like we said, the spirit of the is in this building and in the people, do you know what I mean? But you know, you, you can focus on the south of the island and f- focus on the four major clubs or whatever. Do you know what I mean? And think you've been to a beefer, but there's so a beefa's got so much more to offer. Do you think there
1: is a kind of fight back from the authorities and from the locals who are maybe a bit sick of
2: yeah, you, you? I mean, you, you the different adjunementos have different views, do you yeah. know what I mean? But I mean, like. I keep hearing things about them not liking tourists. I'm just like, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> that's like saying I don't. I'm really hungry. I don't like the person that's feeding me. Yeah, just, just you know what I mean. But I don't know. Beef is a funny place. Like it's a difficult one. One time, sometimes it goes like completely on the on the, like the left side of like being free, and then it makes a decision and it completely suffocates everything that you've just. Create, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's a bit, I don't know. Cause there's some of the decisions are so wild. Like, you know what I mean? It's like one minute they're behind it and then next minute they're against it. It's just like, you know, it happens with the beach bars and everybody. You know what I mean? It's like telling people that they have to put plastic sun loungers down, not wooden ones. <laughs> it's like, what? So you don't want a really nice one. You want a really plastic one. What, what, what's, where's the sense in that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's, it's hard to understand that mentality. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know?
1: Yeah, definitely. So obviously you can tell from your accent, they're not from Ibiza originally. You were born in Leeds.
2: Slightly Yorkshire to be thinker. Yorkshire, but your senior.
1: When I visited Ibiza to do the interview the first time around, we did it in your uh, beautiful studio, um, looking out over the hills. Um, what was the first place that you made music?
2: I mean, it's a bit of a trick question actually because the first thing that I actually did in a studio was a mega mix. Right people know what mega mixes are. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds funny saying it. Uh, basically, we got like a, a sh- me and Kevin, Boy Wonder, who I started out with, we got like a, like a government grant, which gave us a day in a studio. So we basically did this mega mix on a reel-to-reel, at a studio called Whole Place in Leeds. And it was like a 12 minute mix we did of all this compilation of tracks. And then we, Went to Huddersfield and had it cut on an acetate in Huddersfield. That was the first recording, but it wasn't really our music, if you know what I mean. It was a mega mix.
1: <laughs> I mean, tell us about the Leeds that you grew up in.
2: Well, I'm from from like, it's funny saying it. I'm from I'm from Burley in Leeds, Burley Road, but people class it as Hyde Park now. I don't know why, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but but so. Got sound from Hyde Park as well. So, but basically, in my neighbourhood was sound systems, reggae sound systems. Um, was it a predominantly black neighbourhood? No, totally mixed, totally mixed. Lots of Irish, lots of Asian, lots of West Indian. Do you know what I mean? Obviously English, Scottish. Do you know what I mean? But it was the like that. That actual neighbourhood was really mixed, and then we we were we were we had the influence of the university as well because that's in our neighbourhood as well. So a lot of students so it's a very vibrant area especially being a teenager and gate crashing student parties and good stuff like that but basically um me growing up was basically there was a youth club called Bellevue Youth Club which um there was a juniors and a senior youth club but in the senior youth club was the reggae sound systems so I was too young to go in there so I used to sit outside and listen to the windows rattling listen to the bass rattling but a really close friend of mine he's a Brother was the head of one of these one of these sound systems called messiah and i used the basement where they used to build speaker boxes was across the street from our school playground so when school finished I used to go to that basement and watch them build speaker boxes and that was my introduction unbeknown to me into the whole sound system world and that 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 just being fascinated with with speakers and bass and shit like that.
1: Was that where you kind of pinpoint your earliest kind of love of love music coming from or was it earlier than that?
2: Probably a bit earlier than that because my dad had two gramophones, had one in the kitchen and one in the lounge that we weren't allowed to touch, but we did touch when he went out. I even broke the stylus on one of them and tried to replace it with a safety pin. <laughs> How did that go down? With a belt, basically. <laughs> <laughs> It just like, even laugh at it now when I think about it, I tried to replace a stylus <laughs> with a safety pin. <laughs> I mean, it may, you know. So I was creative, right, from an yeah. early age. <laughs> you know, a creative blagger. But yeah, um, but like, so my dad had, had 45s and stuff. And, you know, my dad was really, my dad was into a lot of jive and swing and stuff like that. Obviously, Reggie was in the house. And, uh, you know, through my sister, who was a disco dancer, who used to win competitions and bring vinyl home because you'd win a 12 inch if you won a dancing competition or a tape, you know. So I was influenced from that. And my brother used to bring these tapes from this other guy in the neighborhood and stuff. So I used to sneak and listen to that on his Ghetto Blaster when he was out. So it was around me, you know, but I would say that the sound system part of my my close friend Dennis at the time, and just that was, that's really etched in my mind because there was a reggae album, by a producer called Scientist, a dub album that came out and all his artwork is cartoon covers. So being a kid, you're attracted to the cartoon covers or green sleeve records, you were attracted to the sleeve on that because we used to sit there and go, that's me, no, and that's me. And you know, bags that to be me and all that kind of thing. So the affiliation were there with the cartoons, but then the records, the affiliation. So then I started collecting and that was when I was like nine, 10 years old. And I didn't realize at the time, that that was the first regular producer, that was the first producer I'd even become a fan of, or even was, was collecting an actual artist. That was the, But I didn't realize that at the time. You know what I mean? I was just doing it sort of thing.
1: Did you ever get involved in, so you were like, you were building the sound systems as well? You were helping yeah, out?
2: Yeah, well, basically where we lived, there was a warehouse where they used to repair TVs. There used to be a TV company called DER. <laughs> All the other kids, we all used to go there in the skip. They used to throw all the old TVs away and the valves that were in the back of the TV, we used to get them out and throw them at a wall because they used to explode. So all the kids were doing that. And then I was like, there's speakers in the back of these t- the speakers in these TVs. So I was just like, right. So I started taking the speakers out and getting a shoebox and making speaker boxes out of shoeboxes with these TV speakers. So I'd have like, let's say like eight speakers wired up to one Fidelity turntable or wired up in my room. And that was my sound system but I called that sound system Echo 45. <laughs> that was the start. Nice. So
1: how old are you when you first got into break dancing?
2: Uh, 12, 12 years old. So I think that's right. And was that your sister's influence? No, that was, to be honest, I was, I'd heard rappers delight and stuff and that, which was just still disco sort of thing, and then like I was body popping a little bit because of Jeffrey Daniels from Sh- Shalamar. But then it was that Thursday in I'm sure it's '82, and Buffalo Girls, the video came on on top of the pops. That changed my life. That was it. Literally, the next day in the playground, you got turned up at school and there were circles and it was like, and it was like, this is it. And I was that. That was it. I was, I was full into it. It was just like my life changed totally from that from that video, from that song.
1: It's amazing, there's quite a few of those Top of the Pops moments. There's the famous David Bowie one. Yeah. Everyone sees and they're like, that changed my life. <laughs> yeah, because
2: yeah, how, yeah. how
1: important it was back in the
2: day. But as well, they got a video where you got graffiti, not seen really that. You've got the dancing, do you know what I mean? You got scratching. It's like, it was all there. It was just like, wow, somebody did that with the turntable. It was just like, do you know what I mean? So just like, it was, would, it, it would you know, hats off and respect to Malcolm McLaren and yeah you know what i mean it's yeah changed my life
1: so i mean what were the next steps how how long till you joined the um solar
2: city rockers uh probably about 83 cuz i was still i was still with some of the school friends at the time in leeds and then we all fell out over a speaker <laughs> i basically they had a jumble sale at school and I, and there was this speaker like one speaker uh, was there it was like a 12 inch uh, speaker or whatever and uh, I went home and I begged my mum begged her begged her begged her begged her for £5 to buy the speaker like you would not believe I begged her and then I got the speaker and this was like a big step up from a TV speaker <laughs> and like obviously everybody wanted a piece of the speaker because we were in a sound system together but it needed like repairing or fixing and I was like they wanted to, these guys the part of my crew wanted to take the speaker out and I was just like no you can't take the speaker out man it needs it needs like main uh, sort of servicing. That night I went to like Tiffany's where we used to go breakdancing on a Monday and stuff. And the next day I came back and none of them would speak to me. Basically my crew fell out with me, who I thought was my crew over the speaker. And it was quite a tough time at school for me then. It was just like, wow, these people i have been with since primary school and now like just being shit really. Do you know what I mean? A bit of bullying and all that kind of shit. And I was like, the, um, the person was like, as we used to say back in the day, the person I was tight with was the cock of the school. Wow. Do you know what I mean? So everybody did what this guy said, do you know what I mean? So I was just like, it's quite a, quite a quite a traumatic time for me, but at the same time, it took me in a different direction. Do you know what I mean? I still had some friends at school, but then like my sister was aware of like what I was going through and her boyfriend's cousin was a breakdancer who lived in Bradford. And she was just like, this guy wants to know if you want to come and join his crew. So I was just like, so I So it was for your sister. Yeah, that, yeah, <laughs> <it's> true. <laughs> Got to give a prop then, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, basically I met this guy, Darren Pascoe, um, and, joined, and he asked me if I wanted to come and join his crew. Um, and basically I went over to Bradford and we had to chip in 50 pence each to, to, to rent a, a badminton cart. And that's what you used to get, like, an hour to break, um, two hours to break them, so something like that. And that was every, let me get this right, every Tuesday and Thursday, and then you go battle on a Saturday, outside shopping centers and stuff. A full crew of us walking down with a roller line, line ready to take anybody on.
1: <laughs> um, so you'd, you'd battle just, you'd go to someone's city and just battle one other crew?
2: Uh, well, no, basically we would do battles in Leeds, battles in Bradford, but then there was like the, there was like the West Yorkshire breakdancing championships that happened in a venue called Queen's Hall doesn't exist anymore. And at the time we were sponsored. Uh, we had a manager, uh, a guy called Jerome, and uh, we were sponsored by a hair salon <laughs> called Mo But the tracksuits that we had were like these bad boy gray and like red tracksuits. Were like these red pleats out the back of them. And then we had like a guy called Jason had uh, graffitied this like canvas suitcase that said Soul City Rockers on it. So when we turned up to battle, we just dropped this suitcase in the middle of the dance floor, and everybody stepped back, and we did our shit, and we won the competition. I still got the I still got the shield at home. The West Yorkshire Break Dancing Championships, 1983. Um, <laughs> what were you breaking to? What was the breaking to? I was breaking to Al Nafish, Planet Rock, African Bart, Sonic Force, Clear by Cybertron, One Atkins. What else? Obviously, Herbie Hancock, Rocket, uh, Imperial Brothers. A lot of things on cutting records. It was electro, really, you know. I mean, like, we had things like Hip Hop on Wax, Volume 1, 2, and 3, which were like mega mixes, but on vinyl. <laughs> That's going to be my keyword now. Uh, and uh, basically, and, you know, Breakdance Electric Boogie, you know, all these, these, these instrumental break bass tracks, and then also these electro... Tracks that obviously now people look at as like early electro house and all that kind of shit, um, but yeah, all pretty high energy stuff really. It was mostly
1: off boomboxes. It wasn't DJs at the events.
2: Uh, well, bit a bit a bit of both in the clubs, obviously DJs. Um, do you know what I mean? But yeah, boomboxes, uh, ghetto blasters, as we call them back in the days. Uh, Sounds like there was a really healthy climate of like competition. It, well, the it, it, the thing is, is that that transition from being into reggae sound systems into the whole hip hop world was so similar because everything was about being bigger and better in reggae sound system, it's all about bravado. And this is the thing as well is like, this is why, why I love hip hop, do you know what I mean? The actual true foundations of it is the bravado was about fantasizing, about being adventurous, do you know what I mean? And then fantasies can take you anywhere, you could brag about anything and whatever, you weren't actually it. And everybody did, knew you weren't, do you know what I mean? But being braga- braggadocious and being having bravado was all about that. All right, there might have been young ego there, but it wasn't in any other way tainted. Do you know what I mean? It was all for fun. Did you
1: look to New York as this kind of haven of this
2: place? Yeah, New York was totally like the Bethlehem of hip hop sort of thing. Do you know what I mean? Especially the Bronx, do you know what I mean? So, And the dream of going there. And, this, and I used to listen to the pirate radio that I used to listen to was um, Radio Caroline, which was out on a ship in the North Sea or whatever because they would play like three tracks maybe and you'd try to find out what they were. And uh, same with John Peel. who's to listen to at, like two hours of John Peel waiting for him to just play something from New York, you know, and then you'd go on a mission to try to find it. Do you know what I mean? So because there wasn't a... There wasn't a platform for it. Do you know what I mean? And uh, it wasn't until like probably 85, 86 then with the more... Obviously they had pirate radios in London and stuff like that. Do you know what I mean? But there wasn't really still an outlet for it, do you know what I mean? Because it's so new, you know. Going back to the competitions for a
1: second, I mean, did did this kind of intense competitive atmosphere, did it ever spill over into,
2: were there ever fights? Was there ever anything like that? Do you know what? No. Amazingly, no. You always got an idiot, do you know what I mean? But realistically, it was just like... Is that respect? You know what, I don't think we were just, I don't think we were even like conscious enough to think like that. I think it was just, we were just in love with this thing that was happening. Do you know what I mean? And you were just being swept by this wave, and everybody. I mean, like I, I, the one, the one thing that I look back at like, like if I get, if I get drunk now and I end up breakdancing, then I realise how fit I used to be, because <laughs> I get up and I'm like, <sighs> like that. Do you know what I mean? But I'm like, I've never been in the gyms and all that sort of stuff, and or even like, you know, when I was younger, I wasn't crazy about being fit. But I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I I was super fit, but I never thought about it like that because the love overpowered everything. Do you know what I mean? Like breaking was just, and hip hop was just everything. Do you know what I mean? Like it gave us so many tools. Do you know what I mean? So many tools to express yourself. And like, because I was already fascinated, fascinated with electronics and all that sort of stuff from sound system. And then all of a sudden I'm like recording snippets of tracks on a cassette. Like a few seconds of that track, a few seconds of that track, a bit of dialogue from that sound from that um, soundtrack. Do you know what I mean? I was sampling, but I didn't know I was sampling. But that's what I was doing. It was like push button sampling with a cassette deck, you know. So it gave me all these outlet, outlets to express myself and then obviously MCing, and I was never really a graffiti, I can't draw, I was never a graffiti artist, it wasn't really my thing. I tried, I tried. Got, I took some spray cans out of my dad's garage and sprayed my bedroom wall and I got beat for that. <laughs> I sprayed break <laughs> <laughs> on, above my above above my bed.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, you mentioned emceeing, DJing, breakdancing, you know, later... A couple of years later, you'd be producing. I mean, was it normal for kind of everyone to be doing everything?
2: I, none of it was normal. Like I say, it was it was literally like a wave of summer just came in and swept everybody up. And those that kind of it stuck to went along for the ride. Do you know what I mean? I meet people now, like, and they have the same stories me. Whether it's DJ Shadow, do you know what I mean? People like that, and they, we've all got the same story. Do you know what I mean? It's just like it's funny. It's just like wow, there's other people. In different parts of the world, I've been the same like teenage experience, you know. But it's interesting that you wanted to,
1: you know, you wanted to do it all. You weren't just like, right, break dancing is my thing. I'm going to put all my energy into that. You were also doing the sampling and the DJing DJing and everything. You just wanted a bit of it all.
2: Yeah, well, I think as well out of it, you're trying to carve out what is your, what's your power move? Do you know what I mean? Because that's what it's like in breaking. I was like, Headspins was my shit. Everybody knew about Headspins was my shit. But you don't know that until you actually try everything. Do you know what I mean? I popped a little bit, but I wasn't a great body popper. But you don't know. And then and then whether you try a bit of MCing, you try a bit of DJing, be try a bit of scratching. Along the way, you're carving your craft. You're not aware of that, but sure. like a Charlie monk.
1: <laughs> Looking back onto all your kind of break dancing experiences, are there any that like really stick out?
2: Yeah, I got one that was... Um, I mentioned earlier Bellevue Center and uh, there was a guy called uh, Marvin Flowers who was an amazing dancer. And he actually ended up being in an in a, in a advert for a local denim shop. And we were all re- really jealous because he was body popping on an advert. Anyway, um, there was a breakdance competition in my local youth club. And so I was battling against Marvin and uh, he got up and he did, this, he did this move into this head spin and he spun like forever. And uh, I was with with, my, with, with with my homeboy T at the time. And um, and I was just like, I can't beat that, man. And e. T was like, come on, George, you could do it, you could do it. And I was just like, I can't beat it. It was so like, I was like, I can't... and it's like, come on, you could do it, man, you could do it, man. And literally you've got everybody, your whole community there. Do you know what I mean? And you got to go up after this guys just drop this move on you. I remember just getting up and like going to throw down. And I went up into this spin and I could just hear everybody screaming. That's, that's what I read. just, do you know what I mean? And then like, eventually stop spinning, do you know what I mean? And everybody were going crazy. And I did like the, the, probably the, I would say probably the best headspin I'd ever done in my life. And I'll never forget that moment because it was just like, I was so scared, but I went into the fear, you know? <laughs>
1: so at some point you kind of start to grow out of break dancing.
2: I've well, never well. grown out of it, no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, basically what happened then was, cause obviously, no, that's it, obviously. At the time when the whole breakdancing thing was happening, there was these monthly events that were happening up in the North, actually all over the country, they're called all dayers, yeah. which basically, you know, some promoter would hire a Mecca club, like a glitzy club on a Sunday afternoon. The thing is as well, what, what, what I need to bring to light as well is that, you know, like the, the music that we were listening to, is specialist music at the end of the day, yeah. whether it was dance music, urban music, disco, funk, Whatever it was, it still wasn't in the general nightclubs. And to get in them nightclubs and play music was so difficult, man. Do you know what I mean? So this guy had found a way of like, well, you're closed on a Sunday. So can we have Sunday afternoon, 12 till 12? And started to bring DJs up from all over the country. Do you know what I mean? Um, You know, pretty like relevant DJs at the time and stuff like that. So all the breakers would go there as well. Do you know what I mean? So you'd have a room that would be like, Uh, It'd be jazz fusion and then you'd have a room that would be rare soul and then you have the main room and in that main room you would have hip hop, disco, funk, early pieces of garage, like Chicago house and stuff like that. I saw Adonis, I saw the whole Trax family that perform at Rock City, I saw all that that shit. Do you know what I mean? That shit was like something else, you know, master C and J and all these like, Lisa, Liz Torres, all these guys that were all like on these original house labels all came to these old days. So we used to go to these, because this was the only outlet at the time to be able to go and like break in an actual club way that like, the music, like you were good, When you were going to these night, these, these old days, you knew you were going to hear shit you'd never heard before. Imagine that feeling like you're going to hear something you'd never heard before. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And every and there were one a month somewhere in the country. One month it might be in Manchester, one month it might be in Bedford, one month it might be in Doncaster, one month it might be in Leeds. Literally, they moved all over. So we'd go down on a coach. Coaches would go down, man. And it mainly, most people on them coaches were all dancers, not just break dancers, you know?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, not just tracks that you'd never heard before, but whole genres of music, Yeah. Like,
2: styles. And... Yeah, literally. Do you know what I mean? Like, literally, you'd be like... And, it, and everybody would take whistles and fogons with them and stuff like that. And you know, like we didn't drink, man. We didn't drink or anything. You know, we just pure music and dance. That was it.
1: Was that what kind of opened your eyes to the whole DJ thing?
2: Yeah. Well, again, it comes back. I could bring the sound system thing back round because a DJ would represent a crew. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So, whether it was a DJ from Bedford or a DJ from London, that DJ would have a crew connected to them. Do you know what I mean? So that just related, do you know what I mean? So which born out of our break crew was that unique free. And then obviously I was kind of with that for a little while. And then um, I met this guy through a friend of mine, a fellow breaker, I met this guy, John Hanlon, who had two two turntables. And um, he was the first person I'd ever met that had two turntables and he had a reel-to-reel and he had a double cassette recorder. And he were already doing these little mixes mega mixes. <laughs> and uh, basically, we, we basically connected both our record, record collections together. He was more from like an indie rock, Leeds golf background and stuff. He had a few, you know, bits, but he also liked hip hop and electron stuff. And then I combined my funk, so hip hop and reggae connections and stuff like that. And we started doing mixes together, these, these, these mega mixes and stuff. And we did this one particular mix and John turned around and says, oh, it sounds like a fucking nightmare. And I went, yeah, I'm wax. like that and then he was like maybe we should call ourselves that and then I was just like yeah maybe we should and then he was like it sounds a bit negative though and I was like no it's to turn out our wildest dreams on vinyl and that's how Nightmares of Wax the name was born and I basically did these mixtapes with John for about 18 months and then John kind of it's really weird something happened and he disappeared and we never saw each other again and then Kevin were going through some stuff in Bradford. He wasn't really in Unique Free anymore. And then I was like, "Do you want to come over to Leeds and let's 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 do Nightmares and Wax together, man? Let's do a DJ crew." And when we started doing mixes together and stuff like that, and uh, that's how Nightmares and Wax as an actual crew started. Do you know what I mean? And that was like, I think that was like eighty-eighty-five. Were these kind of mixes and
1: bringing in all these different sounds from? Off to funk to soul, whatever was, were, that, was that way of st- your, your way of staying ahead of everyone else?
2: Um, well, I mean, like, even it was funny at them times. We were like, we were, you know, like you'd hear a record and you hear like somebody scratch one, two, three, four on the record, and you're like, Who's that? and you find out it's James Brown. So then you start buying James Brown records. Do you know what I mean? So we used to look for cuts, we didn't look for breaks because we didn't know about breaks then. We looked for cuts. So me and Kevin used to dig for cuts, and then out of the cuts, we discovered the breaks. Do you know what I mean? And we were on that tip when we were 15. Nobody else were on that shit. Do you know what I mean? So then we started going record fairs and flea markets and shit like that, and digging for records like that. Before anybody else was doing that shit. Do you know what I mean? Like I say anybody, but from a UK point of view, do you know what I mean? Or up north anyway. That's how my record collection started to grow because I started to like discover Curtis Mayfield calling the, ga- the gang, but like the old shit, do you know what I mean? And then I started to find out that these were foundations of hip hop, these were the where these breaks were coming from, do you know what I mean? And that, that was it then. I was like, I mean, I was, I was already on the verge of being a vinyl junkie anyway, but this was just like every Thursday, Leeds Market, straight down there. I didn't even know how much anything was, I just dig for stuff. But now I look back at the things I paid 50 pence for, man, wow.
1: <laughs> but shops were springing up all over, you know, you know, Manchester, Sheffield.
2: Yeah, well, we used to go, because we, we, we started we started uh, DJing in a club in Leeds when we were 16. Like, there was only one alternative club in Leeds and that was the warehouse. And then um, there was a student night uh, at the, 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 the phonographic and then there was another student night called Downbeat. And me and Kevin had been invited to come and like, play there. We got a 20 minute set. So we got 10 minutes each to share, and we we smashed it in 20 minutes. (laughs) And the guy asked us to fill in for him, a guy called Rob Wheeler. And then we filled in for him. And then anyway, he ended up moving down to Brighton and we ended up being co-owners of the club night by the age of 17. We were running our own club night in Leeds, which was totally, totally unheard of, especially being, you know, two young urban kids in town. There was only one black DJ in town. And that was a guy called Roy at the warehouse, who's legendary. And there was a guy who did some other commercial stuff, but every, you know everything else was your typical Ritz DJ. Do you know what I mean? At them times, there were no, unless you went into the hood and you went to the blues or an after hours, right. but actually in town. So here we are two 17 year old kids, man, doing a club night, a student night, which was like rammed every week. Do you know what I mean? So we were getting paid. All of a sudden we were getting paid for what we, what we loved. Do you know what I mean? So what did we do? every Monday pick up his wages, go straight to Manchester and spend it all on records. And we used to go to these places where everybody were getting, at that time, everybody was selling all their disco. Everybody was selling all their funk. Everybody were getting rid of it all. We were buying it all, like by the bucket load, man. Do you know what I mean? And then you go to like Virgin had record stores and stuff like that. And they were selling loads of shit. Like, and we just cleaned up, basically.
1: <laughs> you know, you're painting a picture of a young man who's just totally obsessed with music. You know, back then, electronic music wasn't a viable career, didn't exist, like, you know, it was an option, basically, in the way that it is now, anyway. What did your family think
2: about it all? Get a proper job. You could do that stuff, but get a proper job. That was my whole dad's thing, and, like, my brother as well. I used to pretend to go out for interviews, I used to dress up and that and pretend to go, go for an interview because I had to. I wasn't allowed to stay in the house. I mean, at that time, I don't, you know, I was living with my brother and that. I'd like, my mum and dad up when I was 13. My mum went through a rough patch. I went to live with my brother. That didn't really work out. So I ended up being homeless. I ended up living in a hostel for nearly two years, uh, which was, probably the best two years of my life because I took over this hostel and started running legal parties at this in this hostel. <laughs> so it all worked out in some way, do you know what I mean? So, but I had to literally, I literally um, learned to like look after myself very young, do you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I even remember cooking my first meal for myself not being at home and shit like that. Do you know what I mean? And that, I, a tin of Irish stew and some, <laughs> and some boiled rice and some hot pepper sauce on top.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, as well as being a kind of, you were, you know, engaged in the alternative scene and a very underground scene that not many people knew about, you also kind of being subversive at home. You know, you were like sneaking out and doing these things. And
2: Yeah, well, I wasn't sneaking out. It was just like, nobody got it. Nobody understood. But why would they? Because it was still like... We're experiencing this wave of like this, just this wave. I can describe it as an, a magical wave happening. Why? Why? It's not everywhere. Do you know what I mean? But it is as a kid. Why is an adult or why is anybody older than you going to even get where you're coming from? Do you know what I mean? And first of all, you look like you're dismantling a turntable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, what are you doing? Or you're making these weird noises. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why isn't anybody going to get that? And also, I, you know, my dad works in a factory. You know what I mean? And my mum was a, an accountant at a Bingo Hall. You know what I mean? It's just like, they they know work. You know what I mean? So to them, what, what work is to them? My mum was always super cool anyway, really relaxed. But my dad was like, you know, you need to, when are you going to get a job, basically? And he was like that right up until a year before he died. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But he came and saw us in concert, the full live show and shit, which was good. So. Nice.
1: Oh, what, so it wasn't just a case of you starting to earn money and then being like, okay, this is obviously a thing now. No, it just didn't
2: get. I just just didn't, culturally, didn't get just it. didn't get it. Do you know what I mean? Because work is work. If you're not getting your hands dirty, you're, you're not really work, you're not really working. Do you know what I mean? It's like which I get. You know what I mean? We're very blessed to even do something you love and get paid for it. Do you know what I mean? But like I can't say there was ever a moment that I thought about career at all because it was just like the love was so much and the music was just too important. Do you know what I mean? There was and the thing is you couldn't stand still. Do you know what I mean? Because you always wanted to get the latest shit. Do you know what I mean? You needed to make sure you had the latest shit. And then what did you do when you had the latest shit? You soaked records in a bath, and to peel the labels off so Nova Cruz could see what you were playing. I mean, how crazy is that?
1: <laughs> um, so at some point you and Boy Wonder, Kevin Harper, get in the studio and you make, you know, some of the most timeless dance music records ever made. Records that have influenced, you know, countless producers, countless techno producers, dubstep producers, everything. Still play today, you know, Dexterous, Aftermath, Case of Funk. Listening to those records, what memories did it bring back?
2: Just magical moments, man. I mean, like, because Kevin lived in the hostel with me as well. We got a place together. I remember buying a knocked-off four-track cassette recorder and a knocked-off Roland SH-101 keyboard, begging my mum to lend me some money again to buy a... F- a Casio SK-1 SK1 keyboard. I mean, Kevin just started messing about and then Kevin came up with this bass line, uh, dexterous. You know, I was always a sample man anyway. I come from the hip hop, a bit more hip hop sort of background. So I came with the sample snares and stuff like that. And I remember us just making these demos. We made about like three demos. We were like, should we play these down at the club? We should try them out. And it's like, yeah, man, let's play them. Do you know what I mean? So the first thing we did was a track called Let It Roll. Uh, which was on just never been like massively released, but it was on the first, first white label that we released, and um, we played this track at a uh, downbeat, and I remember me and Kevin literally hiding behind the DJ booth because it we was going off. Do you know what I mean? And it was going off in such a way that we were like, we 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 had excitement, joy, fear. We had all these mad emotions because I just had a feeling I never ever had before or we had a feeling we never had before, and we couldn't stop laughing. Do you know what I mean? Because we must've rewound it about 10 times, right? But we couldn't stop laughing because it was literally going off. And then um, we were like, shit, man, we've, we we should try get a record deal. We should try to get a record deal. And we were dropping this, like, so it was like dropping, it was like dropping the dub plate, like, but on cassette. You know what I mean? Everybody wanted to know what the fuck is that tune? Do you know what I mean? And we were like, sus, do you know what I mean? And then we had like rival crews used to come to our night they hated us, but they always came through at night, right? And then uh, we was in a kebab shop, actually, um, <laughs> at the end of the night. And one of these guys from the tribal crew came up to Kevin while we were stood in this kebab shop. And he goes, that's not your fucking tune. You guys are lying, man. That's not your fucking tune. Like that, and me and Kevin just stood there smiling. Do you know what I mean? And this guy was being all aggressive up in Kevin's face and then left. But it was like the biggest compliment, like... unbeknown to him that he could have given us. And we were just like, this dude's the shit in it. We need to, so we wrote to everybody, sent the cassette off to everybody. And everybody said, we even went, took a trip to America and everything. And that was a record buying trip. We went to some labels, profile, select records, and a few others. And everybody said no. And I was like, you know what? I think we need to put this out ourselves. So I borrowed 400 pounds off my brother a lot of borrowing going on in this conversation. for <laughs> 400 pounds off my brother, pressed up 2000 copies. I've got to say as well, this you know, like just even trying to like get something pressed, like back then I didn't have a clue. Do you know what I mean? Like, so I got in touch with this pressing plant called Making Records, that was in London. And they were like, so you're gonna master it. You're gonna master this, you need, you need to master it. I'm like, what's that? I didn't even know what mastering was. They're like, right, we'll book you into a studio And you can master when you come down, you can deliver. And it's a cassette, it's a a cassette, that's all I've got. So I can only afford for one of us to come to London. So I came to London, they booked me into the studio and I was like 18 years old, totally clueless. And uh, it was Abbey Road Studios that that we mastered the first release in. I didn't even know what Abbey Road Studios was. Do you know what I mean? I then found that out like afterwards. And the engineer, I just kept saying to the engineer, more bass, more bass. And now you just probably thought, who's this little jumped up shit? He don't know what he's on about sort of thing. And we basically mastered it there. And then we released it in July, 1989, July the 16th, 1989. I hired a car, didn't have a driving license, used my friend's driving license. And literally drove to every record store in England and sold them all in two weeks. Within the first week, it was mad. I'd turn up at the store and the man in the van who used to bring the vinyl around like, be like, have you got that tune? be like, yeah. And like every time I was, I'd be at a like, particular record store, there'd just be the, be the right people in there. Do you know what I mean? To be like, like when I came to London, it was Red Records and it was Trevor Anderson that was, not Trevor Anderson, it was Trevor Nelson who was serving me. Do you know what I mean? And then, Paul Anderson to- comes in and then uh, Dave Durrell comes in and you know what I mean? It just ended up being the right people there when they're there. And it just kind of went crazy from then. and all these illegal raves are happening as well and stuff like that. So you go to the raves and there's 10,000 people and your tunes being dropped and shit and we were just like, and then I goes to this one particular record store in Sheffield called Fun Records and the guy working behind the counter, um, who's Steve Beckett, is, was like, oh, we We've been hearing this tune down at Occasions, a club night in, in Sheffield. Um, we're thinking about setting up a label. We should exchange numbers, which we did. Anyway, that was Steve Beckett from Warp Records, and um, they were about to release a track with no name by Forgemasters, the first Warp release. And he rang me up three months later and just said, would you want to remix that that Dextrous? And we was like, yeah, yeah, all right then, which we did, and that got released in the December '89. And went into the top 40, which was just like, no, sorry, didn't. It went to top 75 as a 12-inch, which apparently had not happened before with a 12-inch record. And that was the start of a one-single deal, which became a three-single deal with Warp. So we were like the second signing on Warp. You know,
1: those records, they sound so futuristic still. You know, I imagine there wasn't that much consideration going into those sessions. You just were making music. But did you want to make something new? Did you want to make something that you hadn't heard before?
2: Yeah, but we also knew what we were influenced by. We were influenced by, you know, the Detroit shit that was happening. We were imp- influenced by Electro that we'd been obviously being breaking into. Guy called Gerald was from a crew. Like, remember, Guy called Gerald was a, was a breaker and popper as well from Manchester. We knew, you know what I mean, and we were from across the Pennines. So somebody's dropped a tune from a crew across there. We need to drop a tune from here. It's all about that. Do you know what I mean? So... And Voodoo Ray dropped, and obviously it was such a massive tune, but it was also a massive influence for us. And we actually sampled it in the in the actual original Poverty Records release of Dextra's. There's Voodoo Ray in the background. We sampled it. Do you know what I mean? We didn't obviously in the major release, but you know what I mean. But that was also a respect to what was happening from that side. And then there was like obviously the Sheffield crews doing their things. So there was still a crew mentality behind the music. Bass was obviously super important. You know what I mean? I grew up around bass. It was since like, who's going to have the loudest bass and whose track's going to be? Because as well, you know, I go back to n- never thinking about a career. You know, the ultimate goal for us was for our tunes to be played in a club or another DJ to play your tune. Nothing could top that as respect. Yeah. Like nothing, that meant everything. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't a, like chat position, DJ buzz chat. None of that things. It was literally somebody played your tune in a club and it went off. You can't, that's it. That's the ultimate respect. Do you know what I mean? There's no beyond that, do you know?
1: I guess that's the first time that, that you can share things in that way. Like, you, you know, with breakdancing, you can't. You could try someone else's move, but I guess it's still your move. Like this is, you know, you're
2: li- someone else is literally paying you the respect to playing your music. It's your identity. Yeah. In a way, do you know what I mean? And it's just like, it was 100% experimental. Do you know what I mean? The f- 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 first and foremost. But also, we know what was important in the club. And that was that was drum and bass. That was the important element of the club. Do you know what I mean? That's what everybody got down to, was the beats and the bass, you know? You shifted 40,000
1: copies of Aftermath, which is a huge number for the time. The sound really blew up and then almost as quickly as it blew up, it kind of disappeared.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, here you've got two young kids doing shit and then all of a sudden it's just like, do you want to make an album? It's just like, yeah, of course. None of us really knew what we going on, man. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Whether that's record company, whether that's publishers, even, I mean, all right, magazine stuff, you can document what's happening. But really, like I say, I keep saying this wave was happening and we were all just going along with it. There, was, there, weren't, there weren't really any dance albums. And we were, you know, so we're doing an album. So what we're going to do, we're going to just do everything that's ever influenced us because we're making an album we might never make an album again so that was going to be the ultimate experiment and me and kevin knew what we were influenced by do you know what i mean it wasn't like straight up this that or the other do you know what i mean so we were like let's throw everything in it but that also became a melting pot of like influences that then obviously influenced me later on and influenced kevin later on do you know what i mean it was almost like throwing everything up on a board and it looking back at you and you're going oh wow well i could you know what I mean? I could take something from that. I could take something from that. And even like, I don't like the terminology, but like it's like the first stages of trip hop and all that shit's in that album. Drum and bass is in that album. And it's just like, but we never, you know, we weren't, we weren't ever conscious of that. Like I said, we were just expressing anything and everything that ever influences, which is why we called it a word, and si- a word of science, first and final chapter. It's an experiment. And then it, the album came and it was like, went completely over everybody's heads. <laughs> Nobody got it. Do you know what I mean? Which is cool. Then we went through a funny time because then all it, uh, Italian house happened. I, I remember that. Everything started to go really like, don't get me wrong, some Italian house is good, but it was just, everything went really cheesy. Pianos. Piano. You know what I mean? It went. It all went like that. And then um where were we and all that? It was kind of, and that's when things, I think just even on a club scene anyway, started to diversify. Do you know what I mean? Everything had been in one club as far as the, uh, the the house house music culture was concerned. Everything was in one club. And then at that point in like 91, sort of it started to diversify, you know?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting period that 91 to 95 because, you know, you make this album, which is has a lot to do with the records you've just been putting out, these bleep and bass records. You and Kevin working together and then 95 is your next album. The next night was on Wax album. It's you on your own without Kevin, and it's a very different record. I mean, you can hear that. You can definitely hear the bits in it. Yeah. Smokers delight, but it's a it's a chilled. It's you know for smoking. It's a kind of hip hop, hip hop influenced funk soul. What were you doing in those four years in between? What happened?
2: Uh, well, basically, we did the Kiss Funk EP um, again. That went over people's heads, but people rave about it now. And then, um, is that frustrating? It's just I kind of that's just been the story of my career, really. <laughs> People get it eventually. Yeah, it's just one of them, and I kind of I can laugh at it. So we did that, and then we did uh, "Set Me Free," which was more like house Chicago based sort of twelve, and then Kevin was going through a bit of a rough patch and stuff and that, and then we 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 kind of we we grew apart and we parted ways. Um, but I must say as well, just take it back while we was making a word of science, I was making Smoker's Delight, Um, because I was gonna do it as a completely separate project. Basically, I had this epiphany (laughs) while on acid. (laughs) I was back at a friend's house listening to KLF, the Chill Out album, as you did back then. And I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna make my own Chill Out album, but I'm gonna do a hip hop Chill Out album, and I'm gonna call it Smoker's Delight. That was it. I made that decision on a night, tripping Madoff at a friend's house. And I'd already started rolling with it. So a couple of the tracks that I were working on ended up on on, on A Word of Science, which was Night's Interlude and uh, Playtime. And, you know, not Playtime, sorry, um, uh, Ease, a track called Ease on there. So I was already working this in the background with the idea of doing something completely as a separate project. Then when me and Kevin parted ways, I'd already been playing some of this to Steve and Rob when we'd been going to... Southport weekenders listening in chalets, or after parties in Scotland after raves and stuff. We'd been li- we'd all- I'd already been living this album with all my friends and all the people, and then um me and Kevin parted ways. And Steve was like, well, so what? What are you going to do with this this album, this this Smokers' Delight thing like that?" And I went, "You know what? I want to do it." And he was like, "Well, why don't you just do it as nightmares then, like that?" And I was like, "Right, okay." Do you know what I mean? So basically, went to went to work on completing it. Completed it in. 94, and it took a year to clear all the samples and stuff. And then it was like wop said to me, Do you want to, um, are you going to do this live? And I just said, Yeah, <laughs> without even thinking about it. And they were like, All right, great. So then I had to kind of put a band together, but also. Because I was working with Robin Taylor Firth on the Set Me Free release, uh, the keyboardist and stuff, um, I brought Robin into the fray into doing Smokers Delight as well. So it was like I was getting more musicians involved. Like I've got a bass player called Hamlet Luton from Leeds. He came in on that, and then Chris Dawkins, the guitarist, came in. You know, so I was opening it up from a production point of view. But but uh, you know, like this out that, that that album was so dear to me and my friends. We lived that album before, like five years before anybody heard it kind of thing, you know what I mean? So all the titles are all connected to stories and different places and stuff like that. So it was a really personal personal album, the most shrewdest thing I've ever done in my life because I just acted upon an idea, you know what I mean? That that, that I wanted to see through, do you know what I mean? And literally when we released the album, what Thought It Was Gonna Sell 4,000 Copies and literally six months later when we took the live show on the road, it just kind of went ballistic and again, Totally clueless and oblivious to what, what was really going on. Do you know what I mean? And just went along with the wave.
1: <laughs> was Kevin okay with you keep, keeping the name?
2: Yeah, because I'd been nightmares and wax prior to that, and I'd invited him in to be nightmares and wax as well. So that I mean me and me and Kevin are super tight now. Do you know what I mean? So um, you know, but yeah, I mean Kevin's my biggest fan. But yeah, it was a, it was an interesting sort of branch off as well because I think I think nightmares and wax was a little bit lost as well. I don't think we knew where our place was in the club. My burning desire was there to do this. I mean, we always had hip hop influence in our house tracks, but I I definitely wanted to go more deeper into my hip hop roots.
1: Yeah, it's clear that's come through because you could have started putting out House and Techno 12 inches and gone a completely different path.
2: I still love club music and I still did at the time, but it just was going off in so many different places. I don't think you should ever follow. I think think it would have been a mistake. To follow, do you know what I mean? And I was not—I'd never followed before. It was like follow the this this list, long road, if you want to call it. It's been the most beneficial and fruitful, as far as as far as my my heart and my soul is concerned in music. You touched on Warp there, and I think it's interesting that they released
1: your record. You know, what I mean. I was looking just on Discogs now, the records released around it, B12, Aphex Twin, Richard H. Kirk, Orteca, Electroids, like IDM, some quite gnarly stuff there, difficult, you know, and then your record is just like, nestled in amongst it, which is like, a, again, a very shrewd move on their part, but an interesting move on their part, they could be like, no, we're doing this thing, this isn't for us, yeah. take it somewhere else, like, why do you think they were so behind it?
2: Uh, I think because they've always believed in my music, you know, obviously we're friends and we're close and stuff, but, the reason why Warp is so successful is because it's like what they're here and what they're attracted to. They allow it to be. They don't go in there and try to change it. Do you know what I mean? And and you know, I can get I get in the industry. You have visionaries, and they go, "You could be the next this or you could." Do, they don't do that. They see what's there and they allow it to flower. And that well, that's and that's been my experience. And I think that that's been the actual main ingredient to their success. Is that if you look at all the artists that they've signed. They all flourish in their own way, do you know what I mean? And that's because they're not tampered with as such, do you know what I mean? And there's never a pressure to put a record out, do you know what I mean? And I don't think they ever should be. Creativity is not something that you just f- flick a switch and order it like a pizza, do you know what I mean? It's like it's something that needs to come naturally and when it comes naturally and you have the space and time to express it, then you're going to get the quality of shit. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. I mean, it probably also helped they had art, artists like Aphex and Orteco who were putting out a lot of music at that time. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's some people that, 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 can, that can deliver like diarrhea, man. Like, and <laughs> was
1: it's good there, shit. Um, yeah. Was there, uh, was there like a, a, like a family feel
2: among those artists? Did you guys ever hang out? I would say in the early days, because again, we were all <laughs> Jurgen didn't have a clue <laughs> in the early days, so we were all doing a lot of because we, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of interest from from the world, basically Japan, everywhere. So a lot of times we'd have to come down to London. and You'd do like full on like press days with everybody when what was in Sheffield, even you know like. You might have, like, Japanese journalist coming over to spend a whole day with Warp, so they want all the artists there, and that's how we kind of connected. But we also connected doing gigs and stuff like that, do you know what I mean? I can't say it's like that now, because the label's so vast that there's so many artists on it, and we all live in different parts of the world, do you know what I mean? But um, Are you still in touch with
1: Apex or Tech or
2: any of those guys? No, we're, we're kind of, like, passing ships in the night. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about Warp is, you know, people always say, oh, quantity, not quality, but they've actually... Done both, you know. They've got the quality, they've got the quantity. They've also
2: well, always they, kept the quality. When you talk about when you know, like just talking about the transition of, of nightmares going into the you know the music shifting and everything, and WAP embracing that, I think the label has had to go through that itself. Do you know what I mean? You think about it, it's incredible. It's an incredible story. where what started out or to be known as a techno label is now just a great music label. Yeah. How do you actually don't ignore your past and don't don't neglect what's built you? Yeah? but also embrace the new and, 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 and come across in a way where you can deliver like amazing music, but you're still warp records, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that is what's so impressive. I mean, at the heart of that is the the owner's tastes, you know? But you see, it's actually so rare to see an artist, a label um, have kind of, you can, you can see their taste is the same now as it was 25 years ago, you can see the same with you, you know? So many people, something happens along the way and yeah. the, the re- music changes, I mean, How do you feel about your own taste in that sense?
2: Uh, I actually feel mine's more about remembering. It really like, because like, you you, you know, I talk about that, the, the younger days of like digging for new stuff all the time. And you can actually like inundate yourself with that and that kind of lose the essence. I've definitely been there, do you know what I mean? You like, you lose the essence. And the thing is, is like when you get back to the essence, that's the most important part of it, do you know what I mean? You can express musically in whatever style you want, but there's still a certain essence in there. You know, obviously I embrace new music and I listen to new music and stuff, do you know what I mean? But you know, to me it's like, I know what my essence is. I know what my foundations are and I know what turns me on. So as long as I'm, tapped into that and I'm not too concerned about what's new then I know that it's going to be it's going to be um, authentic I think that you can definitely go down the rabbit hole when you get sort of like inundated with all new stuff it's good to be contemporary it's good to be forward thinking it's good to have all these things but what what is your essence in music and I'm just talking about me personally And I know that I've drifted away from that in the past, you know, whether that's making music or whether that's DJing. Do you know what I mean? And I feel that I'm in a much stronger place now because I recognise the sovereignty and the craft in what it is that I've got just out of the stories I've been telling you today. That shit's sacred. I hold that stuff really dear to me when it comes to making music. So uh, whether I'm in a studio or wherever I'm DJing it's a ceremonial practice of me expressing what's sacred to me.
1: I think what must happen, you see a lot of DJs, what must happen is that you know, you yeah you always seek the new and you play to a lot of crowds of people who love you and you know there's never any negative feedback, people love this music and over time you, your, your taste changes. to one point you'd be like oh so and so now I can't believe it's the same DJ as the one from 20 years ago you know.
2: Right yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Well, th- well just go back to a for again, this is what a Abifa gave me. Is like when I moved there. Literally before I moved to Ibiza, I was like not doing gigs. I was just like I'd had enough. I was burnt out because I'd toured and gigged that much that I actually like, you know what? Talking, I kind of forgot and lost the essence. When I got to Ibiza, I was just like shit. I'd have to change anything I do. I just need to do what I do, and in, that, in turn that helped me remember. So I'm forever grateful for a beef of giving me that. It gave me a blank canvas, and then it wasn't like I needed to reinvent or needed to reshape or remold anything. I just had to just do me. Do you know what I mean? But it's easy to forget that in that world out there, you know?